Hello, and welcome back to the Music History Project. We are back in video form yet again. It's very exciting. Today, we are going to be listening to Hal David on what would have been his 100th birthday. Amazing songwriter in video form. Get ready for an amazing episode of the Music History Project. Welcome back to another fantastic episode, uh, our second video episode. So we're all still adjusting to this and having to look at ourselves the whole time here. <laughs> <laughs> Very exciting. <laughs> uh, and for this episode, we are honoring the amazing songwriter, Hal David, who wrote just about everything you could think of. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> I mean, through decades and decades, like just think of a song and he probably wrote it um and he had a great partnership with Burt Bacharach uh for years and made and they created some amazing songs together uh just a few to list out just to give you an idea uh what the world needs now uh raindrops keep falling on my head uh this guy is in love with you I'll never fall in love again uh, do you know the way to San Jose, which I think all of us somehow know that song, like an earworm in our head there. Um, and then I say a little prayer. It's just to name a few of those classics that they wrote together. Well, well, don't forget, there's always something there to remind me and one less bell to answer. And what's new, Pussycat? The look of love. And what's it all about, Alfie? I mean, just so many to name. Well, he also forgot uh, Don't Make Me Over, which he also wrote with Burt Bacharach. And then there were songs that he wrote with other songwriters like Sherman Edwards. Great, great composer. Love that guy. Broken Hearted Melody, which was a big hit for Sarah Vaughan. And don't forget Richard Perry, one of my all-time favorite songwriters. He wrote a song called Of All the Girls I Ever Loved Before, which was a big, big hit for Willie Nelson. So, um Amazing, amazing contributions to the American Songbook and a really nice guy. I was so delighted to interview him in his home in Beverly Hills, and we had a great time. In fact, I will open this podcast with one of my favorite stories, which was I brought a CD of uh, songs Ella Fitzgerald sang, uh, her album, uh, I think it was um, Sunshine of Your Love, which was kind of funny because Ella always was a singer of popular songs. So way outside the big band era, way outside jazz, she just kept singing. So if it was popular in the 60s and it was by Cream, it didn't matter to her, she was still going to sing the song. And she did it great. She made it her own. And on that album were a couple of songs that uh, Hal David wrote. And he did not know that. I don't know how he didn't know Ella Fitzgerald <laughs> recorded some of his songs. So here I was thinking I was going to get this autograph and Hal asks, can I have that? What are you going to say? <laughs> no. <laughs> so I don't have that album anymore, but he had it in his collection. So <laughs> great guy. I think you guys are going to love this podcast. So let's just jump right into this interview. Um, just a reminder too, this is a full video podcast. So we will be on video the entire time as well as these interviews. And if you want to see that, just head over to namnamm.org slash library slash podcast and you will see all of our past episodes as well as our brand new video podcasts so without further ado here is hal david well mr david it's such a pleasure to meet you thank you for having us come and visit with you well the first thing i'd like is, is if you would call me hal okay i'll try to get used to that <laughs> <laughs> 
You know, one of the things that's just so intriguing to us is where this passion for music comes from that is so prevalent in people's lives. And I wonder for you, where did that come from? Did you have a lot of music in your home when you were growing up? Well, f firstly, we were three boys uh, and we each played the violin. Uh, but my, my oldest brother, Mac David, became a songwriter and had a, a, a very successful career. And, and he was a role model for me. And so it just seemed natural for me to write songs myself. Did your parents play? My parents didn't play at all. Uh, they owned a, a delicatessen restaurant in Brooklyn. That's where we lived and, uh, and lived above the restaurant. And, uh, and my mother was very, very good about getting us music lessons and seeing that we went to museums and did do the things that uh, we should have been doing at that time. How interesting. What was the name of the uh, delicatessen? David's. <laughs> <laughs> And did you think that you were going to stay in the delicatessen business? Well, I knew I wasn't going to stay in the delicatessen business. <laughs> nor did my brothers and my, I, I, we had one sister who was the youngest. Uh, but and I don't think our parents wanted us to do that either. But uh, I think they wanted a couple of doctors and maybe a lawyer or two. Uh, it didn't turn out that way. <laughs> So how did your brother start his career? How did that develop? Well, he was going to Cornell at the time. Uh, he, he was the first son, and he was going to be a lawyer. He was very bright, and, uh, but he loved writing songs. Where that came from, who knows? Uh, and he'd come home and with his songs and on vacation and go to see publishers and band leaders, and, uh, which upset my father no end, uh, because he was supposed to be a lawyer. Yeah. And this went on and on. And uh, one day my father, who was very upset with my brother, uh, said, I, I, I don't want a Broadway bum for a son, and if that's what you're gonna continue doing, you can't live here. And my brother moves out, moved down to Greenwich Village. Uh, as I understand it, uh, he lived, went to, lived above the village vanguard and used to be on the floor of the village vanguard and, and sing some songs and things of that nature. Uh, my mother used to go down and give him money from time to time, so, <laughs> which of course my father either didn't know about or, or just looked away. <laughs> and then my brother went backstage at the Brooklyn Paramount and showed some of his lyrics to Johnny Green, who was a, not only a band leader at the time, but one of the great composers. And Johnny Green liked this material. And Johnny Green started to write for my brother. 
and they had a hit or two right off the bat. And my father would be, suddenly became very proud of <laughs> his son was writing songs that were being played on the radio. <laughs> now, did he do uh, Gone with the Wind? My brother did the lyric for Tara's theme. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's neat. Yeah. What were his early hits with Johnny Green? It was a song called Rain, Rain, Go Away. But uh, over the years, he did Candy, I Don't Care If the Sun Don't Shine, uh, and, and, and so many motion picture songs, yeah. Wow, that's terrific. So now that your dad's proud of your, uh, your brother, did that help you a bit? It's, by the time I came around, uh, it didn't make a difference what I wanted to do. And, and my interest was always in writing something, playing, writing. And uh, I was uh, editor of the school uh, magazine uh, when I went to high school. Same high school my brothers went to. And, and, uh, uh, but, but, and I had a little band, and we used to play for weddings and bar mitzvahs in Brooklyn. And it was kind of interesting. Now, what about your other brother? Did he go into music? No, he didn't go into music, though he, he did play the violin like the three of us. I, don't, I, I know I wasn't terribly good, and I don't think they were so great either. Uh, but uh, he, he became an artist. Ah. So somewhere in my parents' genes, uh, there will be this artistic uh, nature uh, that the three of us had. So what um, drew you into music? What, what, how did that passion develop for you? Well, I, I, I played in the school orchestra uh, in high school and, and, uh, and, and of course my brother wrote songs, I wrote songs. And, uh, and we played them with our little band. And we also, during two summers, uh, I uh, played in the Bosch Circuit in Ellenville, New York, with our little band. And that, that was, you know, a great experience for me. And uh, I had a job as a copywriter on the New York Post. It was my first real job. And uh, so my interest was there, and the question was which direction I was going to go, whether I'd become an advertising person with my writing or be a journalist, be a songwriter. My brother did not encourage me. Uh, my, he uh, thought it was a very difficult profession, and he said, you know, with your ability, advertising of, of newspapers, that's where you should be. And, uh, but uh, anyway, there was something about writing songs that got me fully involved. And so... How, tell me about some of the early things that you wrote and, and how did you get them published? Well, the, 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 the earliest things I did, I, I, 
I was drafted into World War II and through good fortune and in an interview I did, uh, I was put into special services in Hawaii. And, uh, and among the things I did is I, I wrote songs for, for the shows that were in the Central and South Pacific that were shown to the troops. And I did that for about two and a half years. I was there. And I was there with a lot of young people who went on to have good careers. Alan Ludden, Howard Morris, Carl Reiner, Werner Klemper, Ernie Flatt. And it was just an exciting group to be with, being involved in entertainment and show business and, uh, and and I came back from the war and I decided that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to write songs. That was the most exciting thing. The, the first song, I had a, 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 a one show that I did called Jumping Jupiter with a fellow named Roger Adams. Uh, was recorded by RCA Victor for the Army. And that was incredible for me to have my songs recorded and recorded by the orchestra we had in the Army and the singers we had in the Army. And that, of course, gave me another impetus. I mean, I came back. Uh, first song I wrote was a song called, or first song I had published was a song called Horizontal, which came out, was quoted by someone on RCA Victor called Bunty Pendleton. And when that record came out, it was thrilling. And then I just, you know, went on and started to write songs and I had songs with Teresa Brewer called Bell Bottom Blues, which was a big, big hit. I don't know if it was number one or two or three, but... And Sarah Vaughan, Broken Hearted Melody, and American Beauty Road with Frank Sinatra. So one day, and this was all being done in the Brill Building. So that was uh, Hal talking a little bit about his um, upbringing and family and uh, very musical family and very, uh, very artistic and musical family, I must say, uh, and just how he kind of stumbled into uh, writing music for and during World War II. It's kind of a fascinating uh, progression that he made there. He didn't talk a whole lot about his brother, um, Mac David, not to be confused with Mac Davis, another great songwriter. Um, Mac David was born in 1912, I believe, and Hal came around 1921. So there was a little gap there in age, but um, he was strongly influenced by his brother. Uh, Mac had a series of amazing songs uh, with the Walt Disney Company, including Bibbidi Boppity Boop, which you have to say really quick so you don't say it wrong. Um, and he also wrote a, a, a song, um, Al uh, Ashley is often 
challenged me really without saying so that um <laughs> i, I always mention elvis in every episode of the podcast and i don't believe that's always the case but in this case mac david wrote a song called i don't care if the sun don't shine which elvis recorded in his early days at sun records if you listen to our podcast of sun records which i think is number one and number two mm -hmm. uh you will hear that story as well but uh yeah very talented family obviously and uh hal got a lot of inspiration from his brother over the years for sure so uh, they actually both worked at the Brill Building, which is what we're going to be hearing about next. The Brill Building basically was the mecca of songwriters uh, in the 40s, but also in the 60s, it sort of was redefined as the place where you went to get a song. Um, and so there were Bacharachs and uh, Hal Davids and Carol King and, and people like that were definitely in all their glory at the Brill Building in the 60s. Back in the 40s, uh, it was really the place to be as well but uh for already established songwriters who would just churn out hit after hit on their own without being commissioned and or approached by a specific artist which happened later and interestingly enough i learned from hal off camera while i was setting up that the brill building brill actually um somehow comes from the word haberdasher which is a small like retailer so on the bottom floor they had retailers that were selling sewing equipment like knitting needles and thread and things like that and that how somehow uh the the building became known as the brill building um and now of course today it's it's very much synonymously uh thought of in the in the world of songwriting so interesting little tidbit i learned from mr david i thought i'd pass along to you uh, unfortunately when i went there a few years ago it was a cvs um no, oh, no. no longer no longer the mecca of songwriting but all those songs still live on of course the takeover of corporate america <laughs> i was gonna say come, go, come for your knitting needles stay for the music exactly but now we have cvs <laughs> <laughs> So back to the interview and Hal David talking about the Brill Building. I remember meeting my brother uh, walking into the Brill Building one day early on and he was walking in with Milton Burrow and we stopped to say hello and he introduced me to Milton Burrow and I had a song and I said, where do you suggest I go? And he said, well, I'd recommend that you start on the 11th floor, which was the top floor, and go from publisher to publisher all the way down to the first floor. Or you can reverse it and start on the first and go all the way up to the 11th. Because the building was just filled with music publishers. So they had their individual offices on they, each floor? They had individual offices. Uh, there were two major buildings. There was 1619 Broadway, which was the building. I still remember it after all these years. Uh, and a building across the way, about a block away, uh, called 1650, uh, where uh, an awful lot of very talented writers started out. And so what was the thought behind the Brill Building? Just that it centralized everything? It, it centralized everything. I don't think it's like that anymore. 
and, uh, and writers got to know each other. And, and you know, we, we would sing our songs to each other. And there was a restaurant called The Turf in the Brill Building. And that's where we would, when we had money, where we'd have lunch. When we didn't have money, there was a, a stand nearby where you could have heroes. And there was another place where uh, you could have a glass of milk and, and a peanut butter and cheese sandwich. <laughs> you remember that well, huh? Very well. <laughs> But having lunch at the turf, there was always like there was like a long table where we would all you just wind up sitting there. It's like a club in a way, mm. and uh, and everybody would be telling each other what was happening in our lives, and and if somebody was doing better than we were, we probably were jealous, but at the same time happy for them and. And you'd wonder, well, is it ever going to happen to us? I imagine that um, music publishing can sort of be a cutthroat business at times. It sort of surprises me that they would be all in that one building. Did the publishers get along with each other? Well, I, I, I would assume so, yeah. I, they all knew each other. Yeah. Everybody knew each other. That was the nice thing about it. Mm. Uh, and. Uh, the you know you didn't even need an appointment you 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 you, you would just go in and and you just wait until they called you in to play your song for so on and so forth and uh, it was very informal and you know some publishers would just never like what you wrote. And here and there, there'd be a publisher who thought you were pretty good and encouraged you and began to publish your songs. And uh, publishing was, was probably more important in those days. Uh, those were the days when I think the only writer who had his own publishing company, was probably Irving Berlin. Then a few other writers that had, and show writers were able to have keep their own copyrights, but even they wound up going with public, just most of the, you know, the Gershwins and the Kearns, and they went with Max Streifus, with uh, chapel music, and uh, and in those days, you you know, you'd get to, to know. Uh, I got to meet Ira Gershwin early in my career. Uh, I got to know him a lot better when I came out here, uh, and Jerome Kern, and, and it it was you know, just a, a very exciting business, and and publishers. It was before records were so important. I started out in the days when sheet music was the number one source of income. And then records became 
at the tail end of the Big Bad era. Do you remember the publisher that published your first songs? I, I think it was Lee's music. I think it was Lee's music. Hmm. Did you have a say as to who recorded them? For example, the Sarah Vaughan thing, you just, it got published and she picked it up? It was published by the E.B. Marks, I think. Uh, and they took it to her, and she liked it, apparently. I, I didn't get to meet her at that time. Uh, and we, we made a you know, little demo, and, uh, and she recorded it. You know, it was, couldn't have been more exciting. I'll say, that's pretty deep. Yeah. And, you know, and if a publisher really liked a song, he'd be showing it around. In those days, it, it, it didn't, you, you didn't necessarily just have one recording. And I, I remember my, my very first hit in 1949, a song called The Four Winds and the Seven Seas. And I wrote that with uh, a guitarist and singer with the Guy Lombardo band, Don Rodney. And, and, the, and the Lombardos published the song, and they were affiliated, and their publishing group was associated with a firm called Bregman, Vaco and Kahn who really did the, pub the publishing. Uh, and uh, uh, the, the Lombardo published, recorded the song on Decca Records. Bing Crosby published, uh, recorded the song on Decca Records at the same time. I mean, I mean, they were released at the same time. Carmen Caballero recorded the song on Decca Records at the same time. Sammy Kay on another label. Uh, the, the one who had the, the big hit on it was uh, uh, Vic Damone, who was, I think, on Mercury Records. And, and there'd be a restriction on when the recording could be released. And then the restriction was up and maybe seven or eight or nine or 10 records came out at one time. <laughs> and you'd wonder which one was gonna be the hit. And, and, and those were the days of what was called a plug song. A publisher went and pushed one song or maybe two songs at the most. And they tried to get as many recordings as they could. But of course, there was you know, live radio did you like that idea of several people recording at the same time? Oh, I thought that was great, great. Much, much, much better uh, and much, much more creative uh, than it is today. Right, because they had to do something unique with it yeah. in order for it to be different than the others. 
they each had their own stamp. Right. Well, like Sammy Kay, I'm familiar with that recording. They did their own arrangement of it, yeah. didn't they? And, and I worked for Sammy Kay. Oh, you did? Uh, because of that song, uh, he asked one of the uh, song pluggers. There were song pluggers in those days. That we now call them promotion men. Uh, but you know, big big publishing companies had staffs of of, of song pluggers in you know New York and Chicago and Los Angeles. Uh, and Sammy Kay asked one of his uh, one of the song pluggers to ask ask me to come up to the Astor Roof where we were playing in New York, and uh, I did. And when he got around to me, he said, well, I've seen some of your work, and I think you're very good, and so on and so forth. Uh, how would you like to work for me? Uh, I, I said, well, what, what would I be doing? You know? He said, well, we'll publish your songs, and, and you write special material for me, because we do a lot of shows. And uh, I said, well, I, I, I'd love it. I said, he said, well, go see, he gave me a note to see Dave, David Krangel, Dave Krangel, uh, who was his business manager, who was also in the Brill Building. Oh, really? Well, Sammy Kay's offices were in the Brill Building and his publishing office. And, and I went to see him and they offered me $50 a week, which I was very exciting. Uh, and, uh, and I signed the contract. And uh, I don't know if I even showed it to a lawyer. <laughs> I just signed it. And uh, with that $50 a week, I was going out with my wife, who was a teacher. And I think she was making about $35 a week. And we had about $85 a week. Uh, we got married. Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> you could afford to get married yeah. now. <laughs> you couldn't very well do it on $85 anymore. <laughs> That's terrific. <laughs> so now, what did you do for the $50 a week? What was your primary task? Well, my primary, well, they were, they were going to publish my songs. That okay. I was obligated to give them that. And he had, he did a lot of material, so I, uh, I, I wrote material for him. Okay. He'd ask me to do something here or something there. What sort of guy did you find him to be? I was crazy about him. Uh, he, he was just, uh, not, not everybody, he, he was not one of the favorites of people. But I found him to be just wonderful to me. And to give you an example, uh, I, w I became unhappy with the publishing arm. They just weren't doing anything with my songs. At least that's what I thought. And uh, there was a man named Charlie Ross who was running his company. And I guess he didn't think I was terribly good. Uh, 
and I wasn't getting any records. And one day I went up to Sammy and I said, well, I, I really don't think it's for me here. I don't seem to be as happy as I want to be. And I think I need to be a freelance writer. And, and uh, he, he said, well, if that's how you feel, you know, we'll release you. I said, the only problem I have is, is you know, I said, you know, I'm married, <laughs> and uh, I'd I, I really need some money to, so I can get started out there because so I haven't been around the other places. He said, well, what, what do you think you need? And I said, like a thousand dollars would help me jumpstart my career and I'll see that you're paid back and so on. And he said, okay. And he, he called his business manager to me and they released me and they gave me a thousand dollar check as an advance. And I paid that back within a year. And we stayed in touch, but I you know, never And toward the end of his life, uh, he called me one day. I had a song with him called, Isn't That Better? Isn't This Better Than Walking in the Rain? And a song he recorded, and, and he said, you know, I, I would like to have a, a Hal David song. I said, Sammy, you've got it. And we remained friends. He, he was dying of uh, lung cancer. And, and, and the wife I married with our $85 a week was dying of lung cancer. And they were on the phone to each other and they kept each other buoyed up and Uh, he was a lovely man. That's neat. That's a really neat story. Yeah, he had the he had a great sense of music, didn't he? Oh yeah, he, he played. You know, he he was he was very good. Yeah, he, I always thought he knew what people wanted. Yeah, he did. And, and Guy Lombardo. Yeah, right. <laughs> They were sort of the sweet bands as yeah. opposed to the Dorseys and Glenn Miller and uh, Glenn Gray and the, right. But they but they were very popular. Absolutely, they had a way of staying on top. Yeah, they sure did. That's very interesting. Yeah. So did that thousand dollars work? Thousand dollars <laughs> worked. I was able to pay it back, and. Uh, went on with my writing and, and wound up having a pretty good career. <laughs> <laughs> now, did you go to a different publisher right away or did you just... No, I, I, I just decided to be a, uh, uh, try to be a freelance writer. Mm -hmm. Which I've really been all my life, except now I just write for, for my own company. <laughs> yeah. 
And you, what was the advantage as far as you saw as being a freelancer? It just seemed to work for me. I mean, there were other writers who were with the companies uh, who had you know, very good careers. But I, I just felt freer. Hmm. Someone didn't like my song, I could go somewhere else. If you were under contract with a publisher and he didn't care for your song, he didn't have to say he didn't care for it, oh, that's okay, but didn't do anything with it. And maybe uh, I was not exactly an easy sell, you know. I, I, uh, I, I, I thought I was pretty fresh in my writing. And at a time when people who wanted publishers tended to want, always wanted something different except when they heard it. And they felt safer with something like the hit of the moment. So it may have taken me a little longer to break through as you know, sort of an important writer, uh, but I did. Absolutely. What, what do you think that uh, turning point was? Well, I, I, from the time I had my first big hit in 1949, I started to have hits uh, on a fairly regular basis. Not, not extraordinary, but one of those guys who were very much heavily involved in the business. And then probably I was doing a lot of songs for, for famous music. Uh, Eddie Walpin was the, uh, the head of famous music at the time, and he, and he liked my work, and so I spent a lot of time there, and I had the use of an office there. Uh, and Bert uh, Backrack was in the nice next office. And we knew each other. And one day we thought, I don't know whether he said it to me or I said it to him, why don't we write a couple of songs and see what happens? Because that was the way people worked in those days. And we did, and almost from the beginning, uh, things started to work out for us. We had two hits almost among the first few songs we wrote. Really? Wow. And almost everything we wrote was getting recorded. So what amazing stories uh, from the Brill building. Uh, just, I can't imagine just being in that building and being surrounded by so much talent and just these people that are cranking out these songs and they're like good songs too. It's not just like, you know, things just to get past the time. I mean, these are classics that are written and created there. 
and I really love the fact that he talked about how he actually liked having multiple artists record the same song. Uh, kind of goes against what I would have thought. I would have thought, you know, you write a song and you kind of want it in this feel and in the style. But I like the fact that he enjoyed the the challenge that it gave the artists to kind of come up with their own different versions of it so that it could sell on its own. I thought that yeah, was an that, interesting little piece. Yeah, absolutely, Ashley. And it really brings to mind that era, you know, late 40s, early 50s, where that was really a very trendy thing to do is if you heard a great song, you wanted to make it your own as mm -hmm. an artist. And so uh, sometimes uh, pop tunes were recorded uh, by several different people, um, one of which he mentioned, which is kind of cool. Part of my love of this podcast is that we're perpetuating the legacy of people just, I, in my opinion, just by mentioning their names in the hopes that just keeping those uh, memories of those great con contributors of music. Like he mentioned the band leader, Sammy Kay, which had a kind of a, a schmaltzy sort of big band, but his tagline was fantastic. Swing and sway with Sammy K. I think he maybe recorded one song that could be considered swing, but it sounded good. And so he was always re-recording somebody else's songs, but doing it in his own style so that you could tell, hey, that's Sammy K, without a doubt. Uh, it also reminds me of this uh, television program that started on radio in the 40s and then went on to television in the 50s uh, called Your Hit Parade. And they had a cast of singers on that show, a couple of females, a couple of males, and their job was to sing and sort of have a little act, a little skit, if you will, of each of the top 10 songs for each week. And when some of the songs would be on the top charts for like a year, these <laughs> poor guys had to come up with more and more ideas of <laughs> ways of singing this song. And I think uh, Hal got a kick out of the fact that a couple of his songs were done to death on that poor show. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of people that Hal's worked with, he's going to be talking about uh, some songs and work that he did with Dion Warwick, who is a very strong advocate of music education and has worked with NAM in the past um, to promote music education, which is always important and always very good work to see being done. Mm -hmm. um, so we are going to be hearing about this magic moment. Now, as far as the collaboration went, even before they were released and became hits, did you feel that there was some connection between your work and his? Yeah, I think so. Uh, as I look back, we, we certainly felt good about each other. And because uh, we kept working together, though not exclusively, you know, he was working with uh, Bob Hidgard oh, right. at that time, uh, and I was working with Sherman Edwards at that time. Uh, and, uh, but we were working together as well. Because that's what, that, that was part of the music business. And t t teams didn't become teams until the, the they were so successful, it just seems foolish not to go on. Yeah. And. Like Rogers and Hart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and at this point, I think within the first few songs, we had a song called Magic Moments with Perry Como, 
the story of my life with Marty Robbins. So we just kept going on, and then shortly after, that was in the, about 1957, and we were getting records all over the place. Some of them turned out to be hits, others didn't. And then Dion Woolwick came into our life, and, and our, the very first record we made with her, Don't Make Me Over, was a big hit. And then we had about 17 years of maybe three or four hits a year. With her? With, 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 well, a lot of them with her, but we had uh, uh, B.J. Thomas, we had Bobby Benton, we had uh, so many others. Because when you get hot, people want you uh, looking for your songs. And, that's incredible. Yeah. What was that experience like for you? Well, it was very exciting to be on top of the world. That's the way we felt, the way I felt. Uh, I, I didn't have to doubt myself any longer. There <laughs> was that, always that feeling, well, maybe you're not as good as you think you are. Uh, and we started doing movies. And uh, one also had a big Broadway show, Promises, Promises. Got an Academy Award for Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head. Got nominated for a number of other songs. It was. Very exciting. It sounds exciting, and there were so many neat things that came from it. One of the one of the stories I like is um, Perry Como doing Magic Moments. I talked to his uh, or the choral director Ray Charles. Ray, yeah. And uh, he told a great story about that song and how he, when he first got it, he said, "Oh, this is." He was talking out loud, I guess, and Perry had overheard him saying, "Oh, this song is better material than than what we're used to on this show." And, <laughs> and Perry comes over and says, "Are you sure I can do it? You know, like, are you doubting me or something?" <laughs> that's funny. I didn't know that. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, yeah, yeah. that's a good story. <laughs> but that fit in perfectly for the, the backup singers in this television show, yeah. didn't it? Yes, it sure did. And, and it was a big international hit. Oh, is that yeah. right? Yeah. Now, what about Marty Robbins? Because now he's much more of a country player. Did, how but, did that work? Well, firstly, we didn't know we had written a country song. <laughs> That's to begin with. <laughs> and but not only became it became a country hit, but it became a big pop hit. And then the song became a hit with different singers around the world. Is that right? I think Marty, I don't know if it was Marty, but I know Australia had somebody else. And I think I think. The, in the UK, there was another singer. Wow. Yeah. 
So there was a lot of use to this material. Yeah. And you know, that was, we were still with famous music at that time. Now was um, Irving Robinson part of famous music then? Or you mean, uh, Irwin, Irwin, Irwin yeah. yeah. No. That uh, came later? Uh, that just goes back, I think maybe, I, I don't know when Irwin got into the music, but I don't remember Irwin being in the music business at that time. Oh, okay. That was in 56, 57. Oh, okay. He started out as a lawyer. Yeah. And then became with the Columbia Pictures, yeah, I Columbia. think. It, yeah. Yeah, before Paramount. Yeah. Yeah. He's the only guy I've interviewed from Famous, so that's why I, I wondered if he was around. Yeah, well, Eddie Walpin, who was the head of it at the time we were there, uh, is long, long gone, had retired. But it has passed away. Hmm. Well, that was a great um, combination of efforts, right? The famous really did a good job putting the music out there. Oh, they sure did. They, they were terrific with us. There's, there's um, a, a lot of um, influence, too, that these songs had. I mean, the, the, the style that it represented was, let's not say copied, but imitated by a lot of other people, and that sort of helped a, a sort of a new wave in, in popular music. Well, we definitely were writing, we were really right in the middle of the rock and roll world, and we weren't writing rock and roll. We were a much, probably sophisticated might be a, a word, but musically and lyrically uh, moving in a direction that other people hadn't. And, uh, and, and with, with, with success, you know, bucking the tide, I mean, yes, everything else was rock and roll. Uh, bucking the tide. Uh, we stood out, uh, and then people began to, I can't say they copied us, but the, our influence became obvious. Yeah, absolutely. And there's also something else that I've always wondered about, and that is, musically, a lot of the songs were unique in that um, you know, like um, the song you mentioned, the first one that uh, was a hit for um, uh, Dionne Warwick. Don't make me over. Yeah, the, the, almost a stop time, and the you know the, the it's sort of unconventional pop music phrasing. Would you yeah, agree because with that? because Bird wrote very freely. He wrote uh, he it wasn't either four four or three four. He, he changed time. And uh, and yet he did it so naturally that people didn't stumble. Arrangers <laughs> uh, would in the beginning. Arrangers uh, would take some of these songs we wrote, 
and, and they'd find a, a, a five-four bar, and they they would straighten it out. <laughs> they would bring it into the way, the conventional way, and, and of course it would destroy the song, just destroy. And. Uh, I mean, they were thinking that he didn't know what he was doing, you know. And of course, but of course, he did. He was a very—he you know, was and is a wonderful musician. And it—and uh, uh, when I wrote lyrics to his music, I, I never found it difficult, or rarely found it difficult. People would ask me, I mean, it always seemed natural to me. Now, did you always write the words after the music was already no, created? No, but, 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 but when I did that... Uh, it was a smooth effort. Yeah. Interesting. What about, do you know the way to San Jose? What came first? Uh, the music. Oh, it did? Yeah. <laughs> That seems like such a great pairing. You know, that's one of the, the many songs that comes to my mind that seems perfectly fit with the music, as if more like an Irving Berlin song. You know, the same guy did it. You know. Well, you know, if a song is really wonderful, it should sound like the same person did it. It should really sound like. It just was inevitable. I mean, it couldn't have been any other way. Mm. And of course, we all know it could have been 20 different ways. <laughs> Very well said, yes. What about uh, Raindrops? I wrote to the music. How did that, how did that come about? Well, the... We were assigned to to write. Bert was going to do the background score, and there were supposed to be two songs. Two, there were going to be two scenes, as I remember, that needed a song. It turned out to be only one. The director took out the other scene, or. It never got shot, but how? And uh, I, I read the script and had a sense of the script, but really, until I saw the film, that I really get moved in a direction that I, you know, if you remember. The, the hero of Butch Cassidy. Butch Cassidy was riding a bike with a beautiful girl on the handlebars. The sun was shining. He was happy every, and yet underneath the whole thing, everything was going wrong in his life. And. 
I tried to write it from the inside where everything was going wrong in his life. Against the very happy go-lucky tune. And it worked. I mean, people often ask me, well, how does that make sense, you know, when that movie? It made sense to me. <laughs> Worked well, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> wow, what did you think about getting an Oscar for that? Well, it was very exciting. It, it, it probably one of the highlights of my life. And, and your collaboration with Bert, did it ever get to the point where you were exclusive working together? Or? Oh yeah, we worked exclusively for God, pretty close to 17 years, yeah. Wow. And how was that? We got along very well, always did. Did you start a publishing company with him or was that on your own? We started a publishing company together, but each one we had a, uh, we were advised uh, by my lawyer, uh, Lee Eastman. Uh, oh, yeah. Bert and I had different lawyers. Uh, uh, rather than keeping everything in one, one place, we, we had a joint venture, but, but we went into two companies. Uh, so we never had a discuss with each other how we wanted to use the money. And we still have the same thing to this day. Is that right? Yeah. What's the name of the company? Well, we have uh, the original company was JAC, Jack Music, which were the initials of my son, James and Craig, and my wife, Anne. My late wife, yeah, and Birch was Hidden Valley, and then I formed another. That was a corporation, and then formed a company called Casa David, which, and Birch formed a company called I forget. Uh, and essentially, whenever we write, the, the songs go into... The separate companies. Separate companies, yeah. Interesting, yeah. So you are listening and possibly watching the Music History Project. We are just loving being on video. It, it almost <laughs> feels like we're back in the office again, recording this in person with all like the banter back and forth. And that's really why we wanted to get on video, just to mm. kind of get that feeling back. Because, I mean, it was the same great podcast when we were just doing audio, but there was an element that was definitely missing. And with video, it feels like we're capturing that again. And we hope you guys are feeling that too. Absolutely, Mike. I totally agree with you. It's really good, exciting for me too. And this interview with Hal David is part of a huge collection that is on the NAM website, namm.org slash library. You can see the full collection there and check out video interviews with over 4,500 people. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> and growing, we should say. Yes, and, and always growing always. every day. <laughs> 
Yes, even though we have been working from home for a year, that has not stopped Dan from doing interviews. No, I'm sorry. Always do them. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I, you know, I just want to say I really love this podcast. It gives us a chance to go and pick a few selected folks. I mean, there's so many to choose from. Uh, that means that we'll never have a, a want for content. Um, but to dedicate this to Hal and, and the amazing contributions to music he has made is really special uh, because I think all of us feel very privileged to be a part of this collection. And so having the opportunity to uh, showcase some of the amazing people who took the time to talk with us, I think is uh, really icing on the cake. Definitely, definitely. Um, and so we're going to get back into the last segment of this podcast. And uh, this is a little bit more about how kind of in uh, in his later years, kind of at, not quite after songwriting, I feel like he probably was always a songwriter. I'm not going to take that away from him. <laughs> but another career that he kind of developed, um, and that was his involvement with uh, ASCAP. And uh, also, he has some great little, uh, little stories about Irving Berlin, which, I mean... Of course, that has to be included because it's Irving Berlin. Why would we? We're not going to cut that part out. Come on. <laughs> so he has um, some fun stories about chatting with him, and uh, and uh, just very enjoyable little segment of his of the importance of ASCAP and what he brought to the table for them. So here is Al David. Could you tell me a little bit about your um, involvement with ASCAP? The uh... I was appointed by the board of ASCAP. I'm trying to remember when. It might have been 72 or I, I've been on it a long. Hmm. I, I think I've been on the longest. I'm not sure of the exact date. Uh, Richard Rogers re resigned. His health wasn't in the best. And they asked me if, if I would like to be on the board, and because they would like me to be on the board. And I said yes. And I was on the board. And then in, uh, I, think it was, I think it was 1972. And then 1980, they, the board asked me if I would take over the presidency. I think they asked me a couple of years before that, and I, I, I didn't feel I had the time to do it. But in 1980, they did ask me, and I served, and I agreed, and I served on the, as president for six years, and then resigned uh, as president, but remained on the board. <laughs> and I'm still on the board today. I, I, I started the, we never had a, any lobbyists. I don't know if I was the, we were the first people, or certainly the first people in the music business to, to get represented in Washington, hmm. which not everybody is, and, 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 and very necessary. And, and we had a lot of very good results. And uh, I, I'm heavily involved, I, I believe in ASCAP. And uh, 
and the music business is changing <laughs> rapidly and uh, I'm curious to see how it turns out. So the ASCAP, you were saying how you really believe in ASCAP and it's, it's a great and beneficial program, you know, organization. What have you felt have been um, your contributions to? Well, the, the, uh, firstly, uh, I, I hired as a controller John Lofermento, the first person I, I hired at ASCAP, and uh, he now is our CEO. He's turned out to be an exceptional CEO. Uh, brought Karen Sherry to the fore. Uh, he's one of the major important people at ASCAP. I think I, I started the programs, the shows each year at, in Washington. Uh, not in Washington, but in, uh, in, in, in Los Angeles, where we did shows honoring our writers. Oh, yeah, right. And in London, honoring the British writers who, uh, whose songs come through ASCAP. And I think we have uh, a, a very cohesive board, good board. And I think I've had something to do with that. And basically, I try to see that the writers in ASCAP were paid fairly and appropriately. Hmm. Which I'm sure they all appreciate. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell me about the Songwriters Hall of Fame. I, if I got my facts correct, that, isn't that Sammy Kahn's I, no, sort it was, of baby? It, it, it was uh, created by Johnny Mercer oh. and Abe Oldman, who is the publisher, and Howie Richmond. Okay. Howie is, is still alive, lives in, uh, in the desert somewhere, Palm Springs area. Okay. And, and at a certain point, I, I, I guess when Johnny Mercer was not well, he asked Sammy Kahn to take it over. And uh, and when Sammy passed away, they asked me to take over. And uh, we we do these wonderful shows in New York. The induction. I don't know if you've seen. No, I yeah. haven't. Uh, we're having a 40th anniversary show in June, uh, 
and uh, our, sh our shows are, are, are among the most sought-after tickets in, in the entertainment field. We do workshops for writers and publishers, do master classes, and on the whole, try to bring recognition to the writers. Very often, people think, don't, don't know who wrote the songs. They know who recorded the song. They th probably think the people who recorded the songs uh, are the people who wrote the songs. Sometimes that's the case, of course, nowadays particularly. But, but on the whole, that's not accurate. Hmm. So I think we're serving a good purpose for the writers and honoring those who've distinguished themselves. Uh, is, is very valuable. I know when I received my, when I was inducted into the Hall of Fame by Johnny Mercer, he personally did it. Uh, that was one of the highlights of my life. That's really neat. Yeah, so you're continuing that. Yes. The last thing I was hoping to cover with you, if you don't mind, is um, is your uh, thoughts about Irving Berlin. We we share our hero. <laughs> well, when, when I became president of ASCAP in April of 1980, that's when the year ends. Uh, I went to my office. I inherited the previous president, Stanley Adams' secretary, who I knew was a friend of mine as well, and kept her all through my... Uh, I said, well, now that I'm president, uh, what do I do? <laughs> and uh, she said, well, why don't you call Mr. Berlin? I said, great idea. So we put a call into Irving Berlin, got his secretary on the phone, Hilda, and uh, she congratulated me and so on and so forth. And she said, uh, Mr. Berlin will return your call. And either later that day or the next day, I, don't, I forget which, he did call. And he's, I, I still remember him saying, what do you want to do that for? You're such a good writer. Why don't you just keep writing songs? <laughs> <laughs> and then he's talking to his wife. He, he wrote, he wrote raindrops keep falling on his head. <laughs> anyway, whatever it was, it, 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 a certain kind of chemistry happened with, with the first call. And, and he may have called me a week later or two weeks later. Just to stay in touch, you know. He'd ask me questions: How are we doing? Are we making money? Whatever. <laughs> not, not that he needed any of that. But, and uh, he had become a recluse at that time. So, 
and we established a very good uh, relationship on the phone and he for many many years after that a good 10 years or so or more uh, he he had a small coterie of people he talked to on the phone and that was the extent of how he dealt And he saw his family, of course, at home, and maybe some other people. But uh, I, I spoke to him every couple of weeks. I would call him if I needed him. I needed him for for ASCAP. Uh, he was fantastic when we started our the ASCAP archive. I started that at Lincoln Center with Marty Siegel. Mm. And, and we were going to have an exhibition to open up the archive. And the letter I have deals with uh, a piano he lent us. Uh, he, he, he lent us his piano and sent us an, the note. And uh, then he was involved. He said, what have you got from George M. Cohan? I said, well, I don't think we have anything. He said, how can you have an exhibition of ASCAP without George M. Cohan? How can you have an exhibition without Will von Tilsa? You know? And he would tell us what we should have from the Cohan and von Tilsa and this one and that one, and where we could find them. He lives in Florida and he's, He's here and he's there. And he was involved in every aspect of, of that. He, he, he wouldn't come to see the show. Because he was, I said, I used to call him Mr. B. He, he wanted me to call him Irving. Early on, I said, I, I can't call you Irving. He said, I'm calling you how? You can call me. I, 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 I said, well, what if I call you Mr. B? He said, okay. I said, okay. And he just wouldn't come, he wouldn't, I said, you know, we'd send the car for you. He didn't need us to do that, but nobody else would be there. You'd just come in by yourself, and he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't allow on his 100th birthday, which was a big celebration at Carnegie Hall, he wouldn't allow ASCAP to send in a, a hookup so he could see the show. And he had a lot to do with who was going to be in the show. And he, he, he I don't like her. I don't want I want him. I want her. <laughs> <laughs> But he wouldn't even watch it. He wouldn't watch it. Wow, that surprises me. <laughs> did he ever go out? I mean, did you ever Maybe see him? Maybe before out? I got to know him, because I saw pictures of him, and he'd be walking with a couple of men who would be holding his. Oh. And he may have gone out, which I didn't know about. But to the best of my knowledge, he didn't. 
he had a home in the Cascals, I know. He may have gone there from time to time, but... Very interesting. But he was, he was just, uh, I, I never heard him say anything but kind words about any of the, the songwriters he knew. And he knew them all, I would Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm sure he did. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Good story. He was, he was very generous in, in his, what he had to say about people, and, and very generous in helping any time he could. Sounds very, very interesting. I'm glad I asked you. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I really appreciate your time. Oh, Thank I'm you glad, so much. Happy to do it. Very insightful, and I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. So, what a fantastic interview from Hal David. Hmm. Uh, just. I love I love hearing stories of songwriters because I just you know all of the, their music, but you don't necessarily know who wrote them or what those stories were. And I just it's like a fun treasure trove that I find <laughs> I discover every time because then Absolutely. I'm like I look up one songwriter and I'm like they they wrote that and they wrote that and like I know that and like okay so they pretty much you know my entire childhood or something like that. <laughs> um, and how extra of, cool of us to know them. That's the other part I really mm -hmm. like. You know, it's like yeah. now we're in on the secret of who wrote that song. <laughs> oh yeah, and just getting to know them personally and kind of understanding more of like where that song came from or what what. It, inspired them to write it like i just it's always such a fantastic story i have a soft spot for songwriters for sure and i feel <laughs> Can't like do that myself but I, have a soft spot for. <laughs> I feel like every time we talk about the brill building too it's like more coolness just oozes out of those stories like what dan was saying about there being like a haberdashery in the bottom floor and like like okay like and then just like all of the songs that have come out of there and I don't know, just the, the depths of all of this history is always just so fascinating. It just goes so far past just the song. And that that's always like the coolest part to me. Yeah, it just makes it that much cooler, the Brill Building, every mm -hmm. little like nugget of information that you get <laughs> from that. <laughs> um, and I have to say, I will, we didn't list out one of my favorite songs that he wrote, which is uh, a Dionne Warwick song of Walk On By. Mm. fantastic i mm. will always love that song i don't know why it just struck a chord with Great me tune. when i heard yeah. it and it's always been a favorite so he also did that <laughs> among everything else and probably more <laughs> we could it could be the entire podcast that we just listen up list like all of his songs yeah i'm but. sure it's a very long wikipedia page <laughs> <laughs> yes it is <laughs> you know one of my favorites of his um took on new meaning in um, 1971. There was a, a DJ named Tom Clay who had this clever idea of utilizing one of uh, Burt Bacharach and uh, Hal David songs while he interviewed a young girl and asked her questions like, what is segregation? And the child didn't pronounce the word back to him, let alone know what it was. And, um, you know, it was, I think, such a meaningful thing because the song that he played in the background was what the world needs now is love, sweet love. 
And if I know this is on YouTube because I checked it out the other day, uh, I used to have the 45. It was it was a surprising hit record actually in 1971, thanks to this great DJ. Um, shout out to him, and um, it brought sort of out a subtext of the song that nor Hal or Bert really thought about when they wrote it, you know, the civil rights movement and the war in Vietnam all utilized that as a theme, but that wasn't really the commentary that they were after when they wrote it, but they were very pleased nonetheless, as you can imagine. And I think this brings to mind something Ashley was saying earlier, and that is these songs mean something different to all of us. And isn't that a treat, you know, and when we can share an experience, like when Mr. Clay wrote, uh, recorded that song, the way he did with that girl, then it brings us together, but we also have our own, uh, interpretations and own meaning as well, uh, for all the people who played it at their wedding or heard it the first time when they met their girlfriend or, you know, all of those, uh, individual meanings are interesting to me and meaningful for sure. But when we can have a combined one, like the one that Mr. Clay gave us, I think it's, I listen to those words differently after hearing that recording than I ever heard it before. It meant something different. And as a result, I wanted to read the lyrics of that song. Uh, I wrote them down so that I wouldn't sing them to you because <laughs> Lord knows you don't want that. Um, <laughs> but I think that it brings to, to mind how something is utilized differently and in this case in a very powerful way the song starts out lord we don't need another mountain there are mountains and hillsides enough to climb there are oceans and rivers enough to cross enough to last until the end of time what the world needs now is love sweet love it's the only thing that there's just too little of what the world needs now is love, sweet love. No, not just for one, but for everyone. Love that stuff. Hal, thank wow. you for all the music you've given us. And I think that that just speaks to on great songwriting where over the years it can still resonate and have mm -hmm. a new meaning. Um, and that definitely, I mean, I think people can hear that now and have a different association with it and it strikes a chord for them. And I mean, that's true, brilliant songwriting and that effect of music that just will always touch people no matter what decade or location that they're at or anything like that. So, mm -hmm. and Definitely. you know, when you add a powerfulness to it, you know, like at the song, the recording, uh, Mr. Clay did the little girl is asked, um, do you know what hatred is? And she said, I think that's some sort of sickness, Aww. you know, and here's this song playing in the background. All we need, Lord, you know, we don't yeah. need another mountain. Mm -hmm. yeah. Isn't that amazing? I, I love the use of that song in that special way. Uh, Mr. Clay passed away in 1995. I, I tried really hard to meet him once. I never did. I wanted to shake his hand. Um, but um, his memory is definitely linked in my mind with this beautiful song. Mm-hmm. Very special indeed. Well, thank you everyone for listening today and watching if you were able to watch. If not, and you're interested, head over to nam.org slash library slash podcast, and you can check out the full video version of this episode. As for us, 
Well, we're done with this episode and we're on to future ones. So tune in in two weeks for a brand new episode of the Music History Project. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Music History Project. This has been Mike Mullins, Dan Del Fiorentino, and Ashley Allison. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us some feedback. If you have recommendations for future episodes, just shoot us an email at library at nam.org. 